0: So I'd like you to welcome Dean S. from Santa
1: Monica.
0: Hi, my name is Dean. I'm a very grateful alcoholic. I am not only grateful to have the privilege of participating in this conference, but I am grateful to have. Been invited to this conference. This is the end of a three week vacation for me. Uh, The first two weeks were spent in Belgium making an amend from my eight step list. I have one gift that I've been given in Alcoholics Anonymous, beyond sobriety, and that is the realization that every bit of my life is valid. I do not have to forget any of it. It is not all good. It is very much tragic in a lot of situations. It is not the brightest thing in the world for me to talk about, but it is all a gift. I am grateful because I am an alcoholic because everything that has happened to me has brought me where I am today. And I have come to a place in Alcoholics Anonymous in my sober life that I would not trade with any other man on the face of this earth. And there is only one way that I know that it could have happened to me and it is that encompasses all of the things that have happened to me in my life. The things that I went through in my active alcoholism and the things that I have found here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have no wisdom beyond what I have read in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and what has been passed on to me by a lot of loving people in Alcoholics Anonymous. All I have to share with you today is where I used to be, what happened and what I have done with my life since I have come to Alcoholics Anonymous and what I am trying to do with it today. I was raised in Pomona, California, in a very religious family. I resented that for a long time, but I have come to feel in Alcoholics Anonymous that these were people who found a peace with their God as they understood and that they wanted to pass on to me. I could not find peace with their kind of God. Their kind of a God was a punitive God, a God that would punish you for everything you did wrong along the way, and that is the way I grew up. And I was scared to death of God all of my life, and I ran from him. By religious background, I mean that we read the Bible for an hour and a half every night of the week. As youngsters, we did Bible school lessons all day Saturday. We went to Bible class on Wednesday night. We went to Sunday school Sunday morning, church Sunday afternoon, Bible lecture Sunday night, and choir practice Friday night. And it always made me feel very much apart from the people around me, the kids that I went to school with. We weren't allowed to do the kind of things they were allowed to do, go to school dances, play cards, go to movies. Those were all things forbidden in our family. I am not sure, looking back, that that was any contributing factor to my alcoholism at all. I am not sure that I wouldn't have felt apart from without that situation in my life. I think I probably would have. I suppose there are some people who go through social drinking stages and end up in Alcoholics Anonymous, proclaiming that they are alcoholic and have passed that magic line. I believe that long before I ever took a drink, when I was 17 years old, that I was alcoholic. That my personality traits were that of an alcoholic. And the great conflict of being raised in this religious family is that I also wanted to please my parents. I knew that the situation did not feel good to me, it did not feel comfortable, it felt inhumane, it felt like I was being asked too much of. But the great conflict was that I wanted to please, I wanted my father, I wanted my mother to be proud of me, and it seemed that the only way that they would be proud of me is this if I adhered to the doctrines of this particular religion. And one of the doctrines of this particular religion is that a young man or a young woman comes to a place in his or her theological learning where he decides to be baptized and to, at that time, he is examined on what they call the first principles of the Bible, to see whether or not he has an understanding of those first principles. And that baptism, after the examination is passed, is representative of the washing away of one's sins. I believe I was 15 years old and was very much at odds with my parents, was uh, not doing the kind of things or attracted to the kind of things in school that they hoped I would be. And I had this overwhelming desire to please them, so I asked for this examination so that I would be baptized into their church, and then possibly they would be proud of their son. At that time, I was going with a young lady in the church. We were seeing each other from time to time, and we had become very intimately involved, and I thought it would serve a dual purpose in washing away my sins, So I asked for this baptismal examination, and so did she, and we were both baptized one Sunday afternoon in Pomona, California. And that night we both rode with my father to a radio station while he delivered a sermon over the radio that Sunday night. And we sat out in the car listening to the sermon, and our sinning began all over again.
1: (laughs) And
0: I felt several guilts over that. I felt, I felt guilty for what I was doing. But mostly I felt guilty that I was doing it during a sermon.
1: <laughs>
0: and I considered the alternatives that were before me at that time, one of which was asked to be baptized again. And I knew that they would know I had done something if I did that, so I just kind of held that guilt and remorse with me until I graduated from high school in 1957. And during this period of time, I was becoming so uncomfortable with myself that I I didn't know what to do, and I graduated from high school and I ran. I ran to a place in California called Sequoia National Park, and I was a busboy there for $50 a month plus room and board, and it was there that I found the first real comfort I had ever known in my life, and that was alcohol. Alcohol enabled me to lie to the people around me and enabled me to fantasize to myself and to them, and enabled me to present some type of picture to them that I thought was acceptable, some type of human being that I thought they would accept. And I lied and I lied and I drank and I drank and six weeks after I arrived in Sequoia National Park I was fired for being drunk. And I traveled further north to try and get a job in Sequoia in Yosemite National Park and they were filled up and I ended up in a place called Pinecrest, California. And I spent the remainder of the summer there. This was really the beginning of my drinking days. One of the parts of that baptismal Ceremony into the church is that a young man or a young woman after that time takes communion every Sunday which entails white bread and wine and the only way I could allow my parents would allow me to go on this little jaunt was as I packed my sacrificial bread and wine in my suitcase and the wine was gone the first day (laughs) and I felt always, always guilty always guilty and during all of my drinking days, it never occurred to me that anybody else felt like I felt, that anybody else made the human mistakes that I made, that anybody else was tempted to do all those things that I was told were so wrong. And during that summer of 1957, I never had any social drinking days. That was the beginning of my drinking, and it was always I always drank as much as I could get till I either passed out, I blacked out or ran out of booze. And I returned home to uh, Pasadena, California at the end of that summer to start to college. And I made it through about a semester and a half of college and I became quite involved with a young lady and she became pregnant. And I didn't know what to do about it. I knew I didn't want to get married. I knew that I was too self-centered. I don't know that I knew I was too self-centered at the time, but I was. I was too self-centered to concern myself over the problems of any other human being. I was having a hard enough time dealing with myself. And I saw an ad in a paper for Girls in Trouble, and I went down and talked to these people and finally convinced the girl to go with me. And we were told that we should probably go ahead and have this child and give it up for adoption. At some later date, we felt that we really wanted to be married and were in love, that we could... Go ahead and get married with a clear conscience that we'd given this child a decent start in life. And that is what we did. And after the child was given up for adoption, I felt a great deal of guilt, and so did she. And it occurred to me that the only way I could rectify that particular guilt was to ask her if she would marry me, to do what all the people around me were telling me was the right thing to do by the girl. And so I did. I asked her if she would marry me and she said she would and we got married and we both began to drink very heavily and we began to reminisce about the child that was given up for adoption and it got worse and worse and worse. And she became pregnant again. And we had a, a little boy and later he died. And I thought, that's the kind of God that that I've been raised to believe in. That's That's... That's what I did. I didn't do the right thing by that girl, and now we had a son, and he's dead. And in some ways, I even felt relief over that situation. I knew that the marriage was no good, and it was shortly after that that we brought the marriage to an end through divorce. We tried to put it together after the funeral for a couple of months, and it just didn't work. And shortly after the divorce, July 4th, 1961, I went with a friend of mine to Las Vegas, Nevada, to celebrate my divorce. And I began drinking my favorite drink at that time, which was scotch and milk. It was about 10 o'clock at night when we arrived in Las Vegas. Eight o'clock in the morning, July 5th, 1961, I fell off the roof of the Tropicana Hotel. I don't remember getting up on the roof, I don't remember what people later told me was a long, fast run up those uh, four flights of stairs, out onto the roof and over the top. I don't remember anything. I don't remember the fall, I don't remember hitting the ground, I don't remember the ambulance ride. The next thing I remember is waking up in Sunrise Hospital with a broken back, chipped teeth, didn't know how I got there or what had happened. <coughs> Some poor lady on the third floor was just opening her curtains as I went by. (laughs) I suppose to any normal person that would have been some kind of uh, hint. (laughs) Something was wrong in your life. Uh, I spent... I thought it was kind of cute. I thought it was a nice trick to be able to fall off a roof and make it. And the very bartender that had served me the scotch and milk the night before was in my hospital room two days later with six packs of cores and miniatures of Cuddy Sark, and I was right back in the same road again, totally unaware of the fact that just maybe I had an alcoholic problem. I got out of the hospital six weeks after a back brace came in from the East Coast, and I was, that day, back at the same hotel, sitting at the same twenty-one table, drinking the same drink, ready to do it all over again. And four days later, I had to return to Pasadena, California, to face a warrant that was out for my arrest for driving on a suspended license. I didn't think it was a serious offense, and I thought it would be some type of fine, but they sent me to L.A. County Jail for thirty days in my back brace, and they sent me up on the 13th floor to the hospital wing, which was a big ward for anybody that had any kind of medical problem. And the first two or three days I was very uncomfortable in Los Angeles County Jail, and then I began to like it there. I began to like it there very much. I identified with those kind of people. I understood their language. I understood getting in trouble. I understood not being so damn good or not having to live up to something that somebody else had in mind for me. And I began to talk to a fellow there that I found quite interesting. And we used to sit up at night telling each other lies and stories and used to tell me about all the capers that he had pulled and all the the bookie that he ran for and it just interested the hell out of me. I was just really taken up by it, and I I thought this was really fascinating. I hadn't run across anything so fascinating in a long, long time. The whole criminal element while I was there in Los Angeles County Jail was fascinating to me. Suddenly life wasn't such a bore. And I got out at the end of my 30 days, and this fellow got out a couple months later, and we began running with each other, and he was carrying a gun, and he would sometimes ask me to carry it for him, and he was making runs for his bookie, and I was trying to stay out of the picture as much as possible, and yet having this alternate attraction to what was going on, this alternate attraction to the excitement of crime. And he called me one Sunday night and asked me if he could spend the night at my place, and I said, certainly, and he came over, and he asked me if I'd turn on the television, and we turned on the television, sat there. and Pretty soon a news bulletin came on that announced that there had just been a $54,000 jewel robbery in Encino. And this man sat there casually watching it. And He got up and went out to his car and brought in three suitcases with $54,000 worth of jewelry. And... (laughs) And we sat there in my living room taking all this jewelry out, my younger brother and I and this man and looking at it. And again, I felt the, the fascination of, of crime. Uh, there were times, there were very infrequent lucid times that I can remember feeling guilty about what I was doing with my life. But the alcohol enabled me to go on and to do those things. And we made several trips to Las Vegas to fence jewelry. And one night after, or one day after a trip to Las Vegas, he was on his way to do some more business about this jewel robbery. We stopped in a bar in Los Angeles, and we came out of there, and the place was swarming with plainclothesmen and cops and shotguns across the street. And a guy walked out in back of us and told (laughs) us to put our hands in the sky. And uh, they took me in and didn't really know who I was or how I was involved in this robbery. They had the six guys that had participated in the robbery, and they really didn't know who I was, and I was scared to death. And they took me into West Valley Police Station, interrogated me for a long time, (coughs) and they finally took me over to my house. During this night that this fellow brought this jewelry to my house, he and my younger brother went out to the streets of Pasadena to throw away the suitcases that this jewelry had come in. And while they were out, I went out in the kitchen, got a little paper bag, and stole some of the jewelry from him. (laughs) And I took this jewelry in this little paper bag along with a gun that was stolen off of the job and stashed it out in my garage in a little corner of a wardrobe with no idea whatsoever what I was going to do with it, what I would ever do with it. It just made me feel more a part of, and I think that was the thing that All of my drinking days I longed for is to feel a part of something. And in those lucid moments, I was aware of the fact that what I was a part of was not something that I wanted to be or some place that I wanted to be, but it was a part of something, which was a far cry from where I had been before, a part of nothing. At any rate, these policemen went over and uh, found this jewelry that I had stashed, and they prosecuted me for receiving stolen property. And I went back to Los Angeles County Jail, and they shipped me out to a farm for four months, and there I ran the boiler that cooked the garbage to feed the pigs. And I loved that job. It was, uh, it was my kind of job. And I got a lot of sunshine. We played football and basketball at night and worked out and ran. And, and uh, I saw pigs being born, and I took care of them, and it was, I loved, I again had that feeling that I didn't have to worry about what to do with my life. The responsibility of my life was taken care of. I knew exactly what I had to do every day that I got up from 5 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night. It was all mapped out for me. No problems, no worries. There were some very lonely moments in jail, but it was also very, very comfortable. I got out of Los Angeles County Jail. And began the drinking again and got a job by a strange quirk of luck. I got a good job driving a truck. I met another young lady and we went together for some time and same thing. She became pregnant. (laughs) Didn't know what to do about it and remembered the guilt of the prior situation. And so we got married right away. And the drinking got worse and worse and worse. And I was going out and staying out sometimes all night, sometimes longer than all night, days and weeks at a time. And my wife would come down and leave little notes in my car that, please come home, we miss you. And our daughter was born. And I was getting into trouble every now and then, nothing serious anymore, just one night stands in jail for drunk and disturbing the peace and sleeping in the car on the street and things like that. One night, and then I would be out the next morning and back to work, totally unaware of the fact that something was wrong. And the people, the loving people in my life, my father, my mother, my brothers, my wife, all were trying to tell me that something was wrong, and I've got to do something about where I'm at. And I couldn't hear it, and I couldn't even see what they meant. I couldn't see that my life was that different than than my peers who were other truck drivers who I went to drink with and who went to jail with me. So I didn't see it as that abnormal. One night I was driving home after work from West Los Angeles and I didn't see a pedestrian. I had been drinking and I knocked her 75 feet across an intersection and she went to UCLA Medical Center and was not expected to live. I used to call the hospital every day out of fear of the guilt I would feel if that woman died. I found that out later when I was writing my fourth step and talking about my fifth step and when I was writing down the people on the eighth step that my concern at that time of in calling that hospital was not any kind of genuine concern for that woman. I did not have it in me at that time in my life. My concern was me. What was going to happen to me for that accident? Especially if she died. And somehow that woman pulled through, I was told. In court, I was told when she didn't show up that she was released from UCLA Medical Center and returned to her home in Brussels, Belgium. And I thought that's just fine. They sent me back to jail, and I figured that was the price. That is my price. That situation is over with. I've gone back to jail, and it is over with. And this time, nobody came to visit me anymore in jail. Nobody, nobody. No letters, no visits. And I think it was about that time that I began to realize that it was all over with, that I had come close to the end of my road and that indeed something was going wrong in my life. And I got out of jail, and I was aware of the fact that my wife was asking for divorce and was, in fact, filing for divorce, and I moved out. And I moved out into a situation that was, in my head, with my logic at that time, was the most conceivable thing I could do. I got a $12 a month garage, carpeted the floor, wallpapered the walls, the slats, rather, and moved in a little cot, a bicycle two trunks, and a dresser. There was no lights, no plumbing. I joined the YMCA for an occasional shower. And I used to bar hop all over Santa Monica on that bicycle. There were two bars right near the garage, and I tried to get not too far from home. But if I had a few too many, I would forget about that. And I'd always strap two six packs of beer to go to the back of my bicycle and head for home, which was the garage. And I'd open up this garage door, and I would take my bicycle under there and close the garage door at me. And again, I felt that same kind of peace that I felt in Los Angeles County Jail. Irresponsible to no one. Responsible, rather, to no one. And I used to sit in that garage. I would turn on my two flashlights and and head them into the mirror. And I used to sit in that garage and think... Open that first can of beer and think about the great mission that I had here on earth. The great thing that was here for me and only me and only I could carry it out. And I looked back upon my life as a very unique one and a lot of trials and tribulations that I had to go through for this unique mission. I had no idea what it was. And I used to sit there and think about that, and think about that, and fantasize all the kind of war hero, Olympic star crap, and the crazy, crazy stuff. And that's how I spent my life. And then a rather strange phenomenon happened in my life. I began waking up in the morning, the bed was wet, and uh, I thought that was rather strange. My mother was always very proud of me for never wetting the bed. And I began to think seriously about this thing that was happening to me, and never once during all the times that I thought about it did it occur to me that I might be drinking too much. And I began to think about this, and it occurred to me that about six months prior to that, I had been loading my truck one day on a loading dock, and it was a hot day and my shirt was partially open and a bee came up and stung me in the chest. And I remembered that bee... And I thought, that goddamn bee screwed up my system. (laughs) And I had had it very well oriented in my own mind. I could picture that little bee coming up and stinging me in the chest and this little teeny piece of white bee poison going into my bloodstream and it circulated around through this bloodstream. And I probably had one of those perfect bloodstreams on a 24-hour schedule. So that every morning at 4 a.m., The bee poison hit the bladder, and it'd be all over with (laughs) And that made good sense to me. So I went to UCLA Medical Center to get it checked out. (laughs) I didn't tell them what I thought was wrong. I knew that would sound strange to to people who really didn't have the kind of thinking I did, who weren't that in tune with their own bodies. And... uh, they did a complete physical examination on me. They did electrocardiograms. They did urine specimens. I in one arm and, and two hours later took blood out of the other arm to see how the blood filtered through the system, through the liver. And at the end of a day and a half of tests, the uh, intern came to me and said, There's nothing wrong with you. He said, We, we have, uh, we can see that there's some. Hyperventilation, but we think that's probably due to something just uh, psychological that's going on in your life right now. But physically, you're in pretty good shape. They said, if that thing concerns you, uh, the hyperventilation, we suggest you go down to the Neuropsychiatric Institute and talk to them. So I went down to the Neuropsychiatric Institute, which is kind of a, oh, well, maybe a half mile walk from the medical center. I went down there and talked to them, had an interview with them, and I was there for two years. (laughs) It was shortly after uh, I began my therapy that I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. I had started a fire in the garage and was asked to move, and so I moved down to a hotel on the beach... And I was going to, to therapy at the same time, and I've heard psychology knocked in Alcoholics Anonymous a lot. Uh, for me, it was a beautiful, beautiful experience. It, uh, not only was I able to relate the fact that there were a lot of other alcoholics who were, who were running the same problems that I was, but there was a lot of people out there without alcoholic problems who were just as screwed up as I was and were having a hard struggle with life, trying to get back in the swing of things. And it was a nice experience for me. And at that hotel, there was a fellow across the hall going to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was getting tired of peeing in the bed, and I asked him if I could go with him one night. (laughs) And he said, sure. And, And so I went to Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, but I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I suppose the best description of the way I came was not surrendered. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous hoping to find out that it really was the bee, or that it really was anything else wrong with me, so that I could hang on to that thing that I had found so important to me, that alcohol. I knew that if you called yourself an alcoholic, that meant that you just had to start doing something about it. So I sat in the back of rooms like this, and I sat in the back of a lot of meetings, and I used to try and listen for things that I could in some way rationalize to myself that I did not belong there. I tried to listen for all the wrong things, all the things that weren't me. And if I felt somehow subconsciously that if I could add up enough of them, that Alcoholics Anonymous was not for me, that I indeed was not an alcoholic. And that is the attitude I stayed around Alcoholics Anonymous with from for about four and a half months, clean and sober and miserable. And alcohol presented itself to me and. And I was off again, in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got no more serious trouble after I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I woke up in the morning with that kind of tongue that you have to go pour water on before it will move. Those kind of limbs that you can hit and not feel. That kind of misery that we all wake up in. But I was causing no one any more trouble because no one was any more involved in me, with me. And I was not getting in any more trouble. I was just sick. Sick and tired. And after an office party on December 23rd, 1967, I woke up in my bed. I walked downstairs to the bar on the first floor and I ordered a beer and I drank half of it and I got up off the stool and walked outside and have not had a drink since. came back to Alcoholics Anonymous, of course, and I came back still with some of the old reservations that I had, that I did not want to belong, that deep down I wanted to find out that it wasn't where I belonged, that that was not me, that I was not an alcoholic. And I was very afraid of these people who seemed like they were attacking me every time I walked in the room. They were running up to me like... And I thought, that's pretty weird. Uh, that's certainly very foreign to my kind of living, and I don't understand all that hugging and kissing and all that stuff, and they don't even know me. What, the, what do they want from me? I knew that hustle came very well. And I kind of steered away from people in the beginning. And I started reading the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, And I decided I was going to try and work these steps by myself. And I started on step one. And I got stopped on step one. I could admit that I was powerless over alcohol, but that unmanageability was a sticker to me. I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand just what is unmanageable. In my kind of logic at that time, it seemed to me that I was able without Drinking, to get up in the morning, to brush my teeth, to have something to eat, to go to work, to come back, to function in all the necessary things that were necessary for me to do, reluctantly. And that if, and that to me was a sign that my life indeed was manageable. And I never understood what they meant by unmanageable. And I used to read the 12 and 12 in the big book and pray about it and talk to people about it without any Kind of success, about any kind of, without any kind of feeling about what this thing unmanageable was. And it seemed at that time, without being able to work that first step, without that total surrender, that I, that I had to put myself on a very, very rigid scale, a very rigid schedule. I got up in the morning at a certain hour and I went to work and I, I ate lunch and I went back to work and I came home and I exercised and I went to a meeting and I did laundry on a specific night. Like in, it was Friday night, laundry night, I remember that. After the Friday night meeting was time for laundry. And that was the only way I could hang in there, was to keep so busy that I couldn't drink so that I was ready to drop by the end of the day and go to sleep. And I couldn't sleep and i used to have to go to sleep with the light on i remember a lady on, i was secretary during that first year of a friday night meeting and a lady used to ask me to come over for coffee afterwards she had a group of people from alcoholics anonymous and i used i was dying inside to become a part of these people to become a part of anything And I used to always say, no, i got to go home and do my laundry. If I didn't do my laundry, I didn't know when it would get done. And finally, a miracle happened to me after many prayers and after trying to work through this first step. I came home one night after work, jumped off the bus, had dinner, and came out of that restaurant was going down to my hotel. And I had a splitting headache. And my plan for that night was to go out on that beach and work out and go to an AA meeting and then come home and i came around the front of that hotel with that splitting headache and knew that there was no way that i was going to be able to work out on that beach and i was scared to death because i knew that if that schedule got goofed up that i was up a creek and i ran into a little lost pup and i picked him up and i took him inside the hotel and the hotel clerk told me that they're just the owners of the dog which was lost had just been there and that they would be right back they were out looking for the dog So I laid down there on the couch and that dog snuggled up under my arm and I felt my eyes begin to water and I fell asleep for a little bit and pretty soon the guys came came back and got their dog and they wanted to buy me a drink and I said, no, thank you. And I headed over the elevator to start to go up to my room and the desk clerk said to me, you can turn your badge over, Dean. You did your good deed for the day. And I thought about that and I went up in the elevator, And as I was going up to my room, it occurred to me that I hadn't done a good deed for the day at all. But that I had, for the first time in my life that I could ever remember, done something simply because it came into my life to be done. And for no other reason, I didn't care whether I got anything back for it or not. It was there for me to do. It was a simple little task that anybody could have done. But it came to me to do, and I did it, and it was it. And I went up my room and I read the 12 and 12 and the big books some more and I began to think about that first step some more. And I realized that had my life gone on in the fashion that I would have directed it that night, which was to have dinner, go out and work out on the beach, go to an AA meeting and then home and do whatever I had to do and go to bed, that I would have missed this simple little thing, this simple little thing that gave me more peace than I have ever known in my life a simple, simple little thing and that I would have missed it had I planned my life for me that night. And I began to realize what this thing unmanageable is. This beautiful thing that will lead me to places I never dreamed possible if I'll only let it. This thing that I choose to call God. And my life today is unmanageable. And some beautiful, beautiful things are allowed to happen in my life because I am willing to accept that it is unmanageable. And I went on and I into Alcoholics Anonymous, and little by little, I began to get acquainted with people in Alcoholics Anonymous and talk to them. And I went on, and did the second step, and the third step, and the fourth step. And I needed somebody to read that fourth step to, so I asked a man to be my sponsor, and he listened and he laughed. It made me mad. It took a lot of work for me to write down all that crap, and he thought it was funny. And uh, I went on to work the rest of the steps in Alcoholics Anonymous six, seven, eight. And I came up with a list of people I had heard along the way. And there was one person on that list that scared the hell out of me. That was a woman I hit with my automobile some years earlier. And I wrote her down. And I steered away from it, and I began to work on the people that were closer to me, my parents, my brother, my ex-wives, various people I'd stolen money from, various people that I had done wrong, that I knew how to get hold of if I wanted to. And I cleared them all up, the ones that I could find, with beautiful, beautiful results, friendships developing out of (laughs) amends. And the day came when I knew somewhere down inside of me that I would have to do something about that woman. It scared the hell out of me. I didn't know what had happened to my little tiny savings account that I had acquired by then. I didn't know what would happen to her. I didn't know what would happen. I had no idea what kind of condition she was in. And I got a copy of the police report and I wrote a letter to her in Brussels, Belgium. And the letter came back. And I wrote a letter to her employer her last known employer, which was also in the police report, and that was not under, able to understand my, my English. And I got hold of the uh, uh, Belgian consulate in Los Angeles, and they told me I should write to the American embassy in Brussels, and I wrote to them. And they wrote me back, and they asked me why I needed to know this information so that I had to write back to them. A letter very much like the one I'd written to the woman in the first place, explaining what had happened in my life, what I was like now, and what I was trying to do with my life now. And they wrote back to me after that letter that they regretted to inform me that this woman died shortly after she returned home after the accident. And I thought, my God, how will I live with that? And I had to get close to a very few and dear friends in my sobriety at that time <coughs> and talk to them about it. And I came to realize some very important things during that time. I found myself unable to forgive myself for that for a while. And at that time, I'd been doing four or five years of institutional work in Alcoholics Anonymous, going into prisons twice a month, every other weekend. And I began to realize through the help of a lot of friends that if I was holding that reservation on myself, that I was drawing some kind of crazy line on what is forgivable and what is not forgivable, that I was, in fact, holding that same reservation with those inmates that I was going into every other week and talking the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, telling them that it was okay no matter where they had been. When deep down, I didn't feel that it was okay no matter where you had been. And I came to realize during that period of time that I am capable under the right pressures under the right circumstances of anything that any man anywhere hurts from or is locked up for. I'm capable of it. And it opened up a big, big new door for me. All of a sudden I felt right there in the the middle with everybody. I felt neither inferior nor superior, a place I had felt all my life, that crazy vacillation that we all know so well. Back and forth from inferiority to superiority and never ever arriving there just another human being. And for the first time in my life I began to feel what it was to be just a human being, capable of all things, better than no man and less than no man. And I went on I was able to, to, to accept that as a thing that was indeed meant to be. And somehow I couldn't totally let go of the fact that had I done everything to, to make amends to the people that were hurt through that accident, but I had nowhere to turn. So I went to UCLA Medical Center and I got hold of a copy of the medical jacket. And I found three addresses in that medical jacket. One was a sister in Canada, and the two others were two doctors that this woman was under care of, supposed to be under care of when she returned home to Brussels. And I wrote to the woman in Canada with my apologies and my story and told her my willingness to pay back anything that I could in regard to the financial end of it, with full realization that there was nothing I could do to repay the loss of her sister. And the letter came back. And so I wrote two letters to each of the doctors, realizing that that was the last avenue and that I was going to have to let go of it and forget if that didn't work. That was in November, a year and a half ago, and in February... And so I did. I wrote another letter to this woman, and an answer came back. In Dutch and I had it translated and this woman thanked me for my letters she thanked me for healing a long time scar that she had never known quite how to rectify and she said no that they were not out looking for any kind of fortune that they did not want anything from me they did not want any money they did not want anything they only wished me well but they had some years prior to that tried to send me a Christmas card to let them know that, let me know that they were carrying no hard feelings, but that the letter had come back. They told me about their daughter, they told me about the death, they told me about the funeral, they told me everything. And they asked me, if I would please write to them from time to time to let them know how I was doing and that it would mean a great deal to them. And I began to write and they began to write back. And we wrote and we wrote and we wrote and we became very, very dear friends. And I knew that I would someday have to face it face to face to feel right within myself. So three weeks ago I flew to Belgium and I slept in these people's houses. Whenever we went anywhere I drove their car. They would not let me spend any money on anything. They insisted on paying for everything. They fed me every day I was there. Beautiful meals. My daughter who was Taken from me, nine months after I came to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, moved to Washington, D.C. at that time, out of a clear blue sky, was allowed to go with me to Belgium. A little nine-year-old girl that knows all about me, that knows why I went to Belgium, who wrote me a letter and said, I'm afraid that they won't like me because of what you did to their sister and somehow mustered up the courage to go anyway and learned to love their daughter the same age, and learn to speak a little Dutch. And the day before I left, last Sunday, a woman whose sister I killed nine years ago walked into where I was sleeping and put her arms around me and began to cry and call me brother and tell me how much she would miss me while I was gone. And tell me how much I had filled the place that had been vacated by the death of her sister. And that everything was over now and that everything was okay. And they thanked me for everything I had given to them. It's so hard for me and Alcoholics Anonymous To verbally put across what I feel for what I've been given. I don't think the words have been born that can describe what I feel. I am so aware of how far I have come through the love of God and through the love of the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm so grateful for all of it. I have no words of advice, I have no words of wisdom that has not already been imparted to you through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous or the loving people of Alcoholics Anonymous, except that there is a way of life here that has worked for me and that will work for anyone who wants it. And I love you all very much, and thank you for being here.